Welcome to Up Transit Church. Good to see you all this morning. Happy Sunday to you. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Jeff. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, we are glad to have you with us today. We are in a series in Exodus, uh, specifically looking at the theme of redemption, continuing that series today. And so grab your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 7. We have a gargantuan task today. We are going to survey four whole chapters of the Bible. We're going to be looking at the plagues, the plagues, and we're going to come out really with a, uh, just an awesome perspective of who God is through this. So I'm going to pray, and because we've got a lot to do, I'm going to get going. Father, we're grateful for today. Thank you for um, the gathering of your church. Uh, we don't take for granted that this is not a have to, this is a get to. We get to come and, and to be with the people of God and uh, Lord, our, our sole focus today is that you might be glorified, that we might acknowledge who you are. Um, creation sings that to us this morning as we wake up to a beautiful sun, a little bit of wind. Uh, it reminds us of the, the creativity of our God to give us the, the beautifulness of the fall. We thank you for it. We thank you for the words of Scripture that uh, tell us about you in all of your grandeur, that glorify you. Uh, that make us aware of how awesome you are. And so, God, would you open our eyes today that we would see that even, even more? For those here that, that perhaps aren't familiar with you, that have never even read uh, a sentence of your words, God, I pray that you would open not just their eyes, but their heart to see you as you rightly are. God, that you would um, soften their hearts, and, uh, and God, that you would draw them to yourself. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. And everybody say it with me. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're looking at four chapters in Exodus today, and if you haven't been with us, let me just give you a, a quick um, overview of, of what we're looking at at this point in the story. What we're dealing with in context are a group of people, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, who have been in slavery for 400 years. Imagine you being immersed in any kind of culture for that long, you've been born into it, it's all you know. And that really is the, the lot in life for the Israelites. They have been not just in slavery, but they're uh, for, um, to say it very simply, they're not Egyptians, but they are immersed in a culture for which uh, the gods of the Egyptians have become their gods. Um, if, you, if we fast forward past this story just a little bit to where Israel is obviously out of, out of slavery, they're on the brink of going into the promised land, this place that God would give them. Their new leader, uh, a man by the name of Joshua, um, calls Israel to be faithful to God and to serve him. And he says these words, Joshua 24, verse 14. He says, Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And Joshua is telling them this before they go into this distinct land that God has purposed for Israel to, to occupy, because that's what they have been doing for those 400 years prior to that. He's, he's speaking to the generation of Israelites that we will read about in the beginning parts of, of Exodus, particularly in chapters 7 through through 10. They had grown accustomed, and they were really serving the same gods that the Egyptians were serving. And so here comes this guy named Moses, and they don't know Moses from a hill of beans, right? They've heard stories about this guy that used, you know, that was a Hebrew like them that grew up as a, as a prince of Pharaoh, but they don't even know if they can trust him because Moses comes to them and he says, well, I've met 
the God of our forefathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who you know in the, in the wilderness. And he comes to me exposing himself at, in a burning bush, and he tells me that I'm going to be sent to you to, to free you, to save you, to deliver you from the slavery that you're experiencing amongst the, the Israelites. And so Israel basically says back to Moses, oh, that, that's cool. Slavery sucks. We don't mind you delivering us from slavery, but we, we see, sort of need to get to know who you are. And oh, by the way, we've heard stories about this God, but that's only in concept. We really don't know who he is. More than that, is this God that you're talking to us about able to deliver us from the Egyptians? More specifically, is this God that you're talking about able to deliver us from Pharaoh? Because we, we believe that he's a God. And that's an important thing to consider because in Egypt, Pharaoh was just like a god. But not just Pharaoh is, uh, in his, his uh, elevated stance as a god. I mean, Egypt is the biggest, baddest nation on the planet at this point. And here's what we know about Egypt. Uh, their economic prowess is world-renowned amongst the, the people that live on the earth at this time. Their import and export business was unsurpassed. They controlled the land bridge of modern-day Israel, which connects three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. From an economic standpoint, they were untouchable. They had building projects that were expanding beyond their borders. And, of course, they are able to do this because they had millions of people that they were, that were, they were enslaving that they used as their Workforce From a military standpoint, they expanded their borders through the Sinai Peninsula and modern-day Israel all the way to the borders of, um, of Syria. There was none comparable to them militarily in terms of their horses, their riders, and their chariots. But they also had a king. They had a king by the name of Pharaoh who claimed to be a lesser manifestation of the sun god Ra. So that for 400 years is Israel's lot in life. Uh, that's what they had experienced for years upon years upon years. There was no one alive amongst the Hebrew people that did not know this, this life of slavery in Egypt and who, in, for all intents and purposes, were serving their gods. And so their question was, Moses, can your God, whoever he is, compete with what we know about the gods of Egypt? Because we can actually see him. We can't see your God at all. And so when we take all this in consideration, what we have to be aware of is Israel did not know their God. They did not know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had failed to even see who and realize who their God was, that the God had, that had chosen them, that had made covenants with their forefathers, was the God who had all authority, and that no one on earth at that time had any authority unless God had gifted it to them. And what we'll see in our text is that even as Pharaoh is raised up by God, God does it for his intended purposes. We'll see those words exactly in our text today. God builds the platform that Pharaoh stands on, and God would exalt Pharaoh to a place of prominence to demonstrate not Pharaoh's uh, Pharaoh's power, but God's own power over Pharaoh, such that it would bring glory to God and all the world would be able to see that. I'm reminded of the words of the proverb, Proverbs 16:4. the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. This is a, a, a word of both good news and bad news, and that's what we're going to see come about in this story of of the plagues. Let's back up, not from Exodus 7, but Exodus 5, a few weeks ago. 
We preached really the, the beginning of, of Moses' encounter with Pharaoh. And one of the things that we read in chapter 5 that we see repeated over and over in our text is this phrase that Moses comes to, uh, to Pharaoh with Aaron, his brother, and he says that God is sending me to tell you to let my people go. And in response to that, Pharaoh, who, of course, thinks he's a god and is pretty adamant in his own strength, says these words. He says, who is the Lord? I mean, who is this God that you're talking about that I should obey his voice and then let you go? I don't know who the Lord is. Moreover, I'm not going to let you go. And so therein begins this, this tension between God and Pharaoh, and because perhaps you've read the story, you know how it's going to, going to end. This showdown really between God and Pharaoh starts in chapter 7. And so chapter 7 through 11 are, features the, the plagues, 10 plagues in all, although I don't think the, the last one is, is a plague of sorts because God brings, uh, he creates a sign and a wonder whereby the, the firstborn of every family dies. And so in a sense, that is a plague. Um, we can liken the plagues, the judgments that we read about in the book of Revelation. There is no semblance between the book of Revelation and the judgments that we see there and the plagues of Exodus 7 through 10, but there is, is a similarity. And what we know about, of course, these judgments in Revelation is that they are increasing in severity and cost. You got seals and trumpets and bowls. Y'all read the book of Revelation? All right, so you know uh, what God is showing us is that his wrath uh, is, I mean, it's exhausting, and it's going to consume everything and everyone that does not bow to his, his glory. And that's really what's happening as we look at the, the plagues. The plagues are similar. They start with Moses turning his staff into a snake, which Pharaoh's magicians are able to mimic, kind of. And they end with the death of every firstborn child in the nation, born to people who do not obey God's word. They increase in severity, but they also increase in cost, the cost to the people that aren't bowing down and obeying God. And so these plagues are judgments. They're judgments, judgments for which God forewarns Pharaoh and Egypt ahead of time that they're coming. I want you to look at a couple words for me. I mean, God tells them explicitly what he's going to do. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from, from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God is speaking to his own people here. He's speaking to Israel, and he's giving them confidence that, hey, although you've been in slavery for a long time, I see your plight. I hear your cries. I am going to do something about it. I'm going to bring judgment on the people that have, in a sense, been enslaving you. And then we get to Exodus chapter 7, and we hear these words. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will hearten Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh, verse 4, will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host and my people, uh, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. 
The Egyptians will, uh, shall know that I am the Lord, which uh, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the people of Israel from among them. All right, so I mean, what's the purpose of these plagues? God is trying to give his own people, Israel, confidence that he hears them, that he is responding to uh, their slavery, and that he indeed is going to be their deliverer. He's going to redeem them with an outstretched arm. He tells them ahead of time so that they would know that it's going to be him. Like, you aren't going to do anything to, uh, to redeem yourself. In fact, you can't, even if you wanted to. I'm going to do this. I'm going to show you the way that I'm going to do it by telling you ahead of time. But he also wants Egypt to know that he is the Lord. Why? A couple of reasons. Firstly, Pharaoh has adamantly said, who is the Lord that I should do what he says? God is going to show him exactly who he is. Think about this. God could have chosen any random number of things to show Egypt his power and discredit and dethrone Pharaoh from his throne of influence. God could have made a donkey talk. He does that in future, future episodes in the Bible, doesn't he? He could have just like swooped them all up and just cast them away to another foreign land and just allowed Israel to, to go free. But God doesn't do that. He, he actually does something that I don't think if we had the opportunity, we would do. He chooses to use fallible people, Moses and Aaron, to, you know, to, to speak to Pharaoh, uh, people that Moses don't even, uh, don't even respect. And then he chooses to use plagues. Play, I mean, that's, that, that word didn't even sound like saying it. He uses signs and wonders. God performs miracles, and he does it in Egypt. And basically what he's doing is he's mocking. He's mocking the gods of Egypt. For every plague that we're going to look at this morning, from chapter 7 all the way to chapter 10, there is a commensurate Egyptian god or gods that uh, that God, the Lord, Yahweh, is making fun of. He's mocking. He's going to basically say that, hey, the gods that you're serving aren't gods at all. There is no other God other than me. And this is not just the, the theme of Exodus. It's the theme of the Bible. God is pointing out here in these words of Scripture that there really is no other God than me. You know, a lot of times we will elevate the things in our lives. There's a lot of things that we bow down to, and they become idols. They become gods in our lives. And God is making point, you know, he's pointing to us through this text that um, there is no other God other than me. In fact, if we would fast forward a couple, couple chapters, Exodus 20, God brings uh, the Israelites to Mount Sinai. He gives them the Ten Commandments. What's the first commandment? Have no other gods but me. God is serious about this. He's going to show us that in no uncertain terms. That's one other thing I want to point out before we jump into the, uh, the, the, uh, the text. There's four things repeated in, in all of these plagues that we're going to see over and over and over again. I'm getting this from Philip Ryken's great um, commentary on Exodus. And Philip Ryken says there's four things, four things that are, is repeated, that are repeated in each plague. The first is we're going to get a word from the Lord for Moses and Aaron to go do something, and immediately Moses and Aaron are going to be obedient. When's the last time God, you know, God told you to do something, and you like, all right, Lord, I'm going to do it? I mean, I mean, isn't that hard for us to do? Now, of course, it's taken a while for Moses to get here. Moses is the reluctant leader, right? Moses doesn't want to even be there. He's still, at this point, 
um, arguing with God about his ability to speak and his ability just to lead the people. And, and he has to use his brother as a prophet to do some of the things that God is going to do. So we're going to see uh, a word from the Lord followed by Moses and Aaron being obedient to God. The second thing is we're going to see God's superiority over Egypt's gods. God is going to, in, in, in many cases, he's going to just make a mockery of all of Egypt's gods. Because the people of Egypt, uh, specifically Pharaoh's magicians, try to make counterfeit gods, God is going to show himself supreme over these gods. That's the third thing. And fourthly, Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened. And we're going to see that happen over and over and over again. And God is going to increase the severity and increase the cost of all these plagues until he wipes out much of Egypt, their land and their resources. He makes a mockery of Pharaoh, and at, in the end, he's going to consume him. And so as these plagues begin, Exodus 7, 8 through 13 really is the introductory miracle that God does to introduce us to the plagues. If you recall, uh, several weeks ago, Exodus 3 and 4, um, Moses is arguing back and forth with God. I can't do this. How can you? I mean, who am I that you would call me to, to go and set your people free? And God gives Moses three authenticating miracles. You guys remember what they were? He tells Moses, all right, so you've been walking around the desert for 40 years. You've got a staff in your hand. I want you to take that staff, throw it on the ground. It's going to become a snake. That was the first of three other authenticating miracles. And so that's the very first one that we see God doing as he's initiating the, uh, the, the other plagues. And we'll read that in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And so Here's the pattern, right? The pattern that we're going to see over and over again. God tells Moses and Aaron what to do, and what do they do? They actually do it. We don't know how scared they are, how reluctant they are, but they actually do do what God says. Verse 10, they do what he says. Moses warns Pharaoh, all right, this is what's about to happen. Pharaoh is going to ask for proof, and then a miracle happens. Verse 11, then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and sorcerers and the, and the magicians of Egypt also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And so verse 11 and 12, what do we see here? The third part. We see a counterfeit. So uh, Pharaoh basically is looking at uh, whatever this miracle that God does and um, tries to mimic it in some way. And God shows his superiority over uh, the Egyptian false gods, um, such that um, Pharaoh's like, well, my guys can do that too, but God one-ups him, okay? And what happens? Uh, uh, Moses' staff swallows up the staffs of these, of these magicians. Wouldn't you like to have seen that? Actually, that would have freaked me out, right, because I'm a scared of snakes, like Moses is. But to see the miracle of of a staff turned to snake, and then, um, you know, by satanic powers, uh, the magicians create the same miracle, and then God just, like, licking them up. I mean, if I were Pharaoh, I would have said, all right, uncle, you can go. But he doesn't do that. Verse 13, the last part of the, the cycle, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And so this cycle repeats over and over and over again. All right, so here's the deal. 
We got nine plagues we're going to look at today. Nine. I'm not going to read every, every part of the text, otherwise we'd be here till 4 o'clock, right? And so there's only going to be a few words on your screen. If you've got your Bible today, you're going to need to look at your Bible because I'm going to be hit and miss, um, not explaining each one of these, these plagues, but basically helping us understand uh, why God has sent these particular plagues to Egypt, to Pharaoh, and then making a few comments about it. And that brings us to the first plague. What's the first plague? Um, God tells Moses to turn water into blood, the, the, the water of the Nile into blood. There were three deities associated with the Nile. One was the guardian of the Nile. Another deity, uh, another was the, the, a deity of the, the Nile, a generic deity. And there was a third Egyptian god that considered the Nile to be his bloodstream. The, the Nile is pretty, pretty important, like most, you know, most grand rivers. It's particularly important to them because it was both their source of life, but it was also a god. To, I mean, the, the Nile itself was a god to the Egyptians. And of course, Egypt is in the desert. Most of you all are military. At least half of you all have been to the Middle East, right? And it's, it's just a dry, um, rough terrain, right? And any source of water was going to be immensely important to them. And so Egypt is remote, and because, uh, I mean, irrigation, of course, is going to be important as they became masters of, of taking uh, a water source and causing it to, to go into other parts of their country to irrigate their crops and also to feed uh, their, their livestock. And so the Nile is very important. And we read verse, uh, and we'll jump in our text in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the Nile, going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, you shall, uh, by this you shall know that I am the Lord, behold, the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that's in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking the water from the Nile. Verse 19, And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and, the, and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, the canals, their, their, their ponds, and all the pools of water, that, uh, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. And so all the water in the land turns into blood. And so what, what's the symbol of this is, it's not just the, the water that's, that's located in the Nile. It's any place that the Egyptians or the Israelis, for that matter, would try to dig for water, uh, uh, a separate located pond, or trying to create a new well. It's all, it's all going to be blood as they try to search for water. And, and here's the, the important thing about this. God is starting these plagues with the reality. Egypt, one of your most important resources and one of your most important gods, this Nile, is no god at all. I'm going to make a mockery of him. How? I'm going to turn this resource into something that you absolutely cannot use. And so jump down to verse 22 and 23. Pharaoh calls in his, musician, his, magi his, musicians, his magicians. 
and he has them try to mimic the sign. And guess what? They're able to do it, kind of. Um, they're able to do it locally. They probably get small pots of water that they uh, gather from someplace else. But here's the thing. They can't reproduce what has just happened to the point that they can reverse what God has done through Moses and Aaron. And so the people, I mean, they're, 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 they're scurrying for, for water. Imagine this is your main water resource, both for you, for your crops, and for your, I mean, your own sustenance. They now have no water. And so they're digging, they're digging, they're searching for water, and I mean, they can't get any. Why? Because there's blood everywhere. And what's God saying in this? I'm your only provider. If I can't, if I'm not providing for you, you're, you're, you're lost. You're, you're not going to get the things that you need. I am the one true God. And at the end of this, what happens? Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he didn't let the people go. That brings us to the second plague. The second plague is a plague of frogs. Sure enough, there are two Egyptian gods associated with frogs in Egypt, and both have to do with fertility. And so we read in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into, the, uh, go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into your houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. Verse 4, the frogs shall come up on you and on all your people and on all your servants. Now, okay, so I don't like frogs. I grew up, like many of you did, did playing, you know, we would play in the creek, uh, we scooped up some tadpoles into, you know, in, in the like jars and stuff. And I mean, I, I went to high school in biology. We dissected a frog, and that lets me know frogs are nasty, right? <laughs> right. So I'm not, I don't have anything against those of you that had pet frogs. You might have one at home right now in an aquarium. He might be in your room. You might like cuddle him and play with him and all that stuff. God is bringing this plague of frogs for a reason because they're, <laughs> Because they're nasty. All right, so here's the funny part. Frogs, it's not like frogs are like these, ah, these like gross monsters or anything. It's just a frog, except for that, that frog, that, the, the bullfrog, like, you know, that's like his, his lower lip comes way, way out. That's kind of freaky. But I mean, here's what would freak you out if you were an Egyptian or an Israelite. It's the sheer number of them. And the text tells us there's so many frogs that they're just going to decimate the land. Um, imagine swarms of frogs everywhere. So you're trying to cook, you got to pull a pot out, and as you're pulling the pot out, it's like 80 frogs inside your pot. You want to you send the kids outside to play on a swing? You can't because the ground is covered in frogs. You want to go to bed? You, you pull the sheets back, there's frogs underneath your covers. There's frogs underneath the bed. You lay down, and the frogs are like popping all on your ears, all on your face. I mean, isn't it just nasty? Here's the, here's, here's the exceedingly silly part. The Egyptians could not kill these things. You know why? They worshiped them. They're worshiping frogs. The frogs were gods to them. So what is God doing? He's making a mockery of the gods that they worship. Look at verse 8. 
Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord. Take away the frog. Pharaoh agrees with me. Frogs are nasty. Take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to their Lord. And so Pharaoh is, I mean, this is an interesting point here. Pharaoh is not having a religious experience so much as he's having a um, kind of a, a religious request. He tells Moses, hey, Moses, I know you can talk to this God of yours. Can you go plead with him? Basically, can you go pray to your God that he takes these frogs away from me? And what's interesting about this is Pharaoh, is not, his heart isn't changing. He is just trying to get the consequence of his sin removed from him so that he can go on and do his own thing. Look at verse 15. As soon as Pharaoh sees that Moses has prayed and the frog plague is over, what does he do? He hardens his heart. He hardens his heart. He does not let the people go. And that brings us to plague number three. Plague number three is a plague of gnats. Look at verse 16 in chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all, all of Egypt. Some translations here use the word lice. Um, all right, so, I mean, both of those are kind of nasty. Uh, so here's the deal with, with gnats. They're hard to see, right? Not, not quite microscopic, but they're hard to see. So you're walking, definitely you're running, and you can just, like, punch through some, some gnats, and all of a sudden you got, like, 100 gnats up in your nose because they get stuck in your nose hairs. And there's no worse feeling than getting a gnat inside your eyeball. It's like a rot is in there, right? So, all right, that's my only experience with gnats. They're nasty, right? I don't want to deal with gnats. Lice are worse. So some of y'all in here got kids, and they've gotten lice before, right? It's, I, mean, it's, I, I mean, there's no judging here. People get lice. So I was at West Point, United States Military Academy, and there was a lice outbreak. You know, and the first thing you do when you get lice, you shave your head. We already had shaved heads. So they, they quarantined a whole company, about 100 cadets, whole company of cadets for a week so that this lice stuff would not get to everybody. And of course, when you have lice, not only do you shave your head, but they, the, the medical people give you this shampoo that you're supposed to use all over your body because lice are like microscopic, nasty, nasty, nasty stuff. And so that's what's happening here. This is, I mean, just like this stuff is everywhere. Nice or lats, whatever your translation might say. Skip down to verse 17. So the same thing happens. God tells Moses, Moses tells Aaron, stretch out your hand, take that staff, and you're going to strike the earth with your staff. And, of course, the miracle happens. What happens? Gnats everywhere. I mean, they're like choking with gnats. Gnats on everything. Gnats on people. Gnats on, on animals. Verse 18. The magicians tried, see, interesting point here. The magicians tried their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So the gnats were on man and beast. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is an interesting moment, folks. So, I mean, they were able to mimic the first plate, kind of. They were able to take a local pot of water and turn it into blood. Notice that they can't do that here. They're recognizing this is the finger of God. I guarantee they came to Pharaoh and said, hey, Pharaoh, there's something going on here. This miracle is above our pay grade. We cannot mimic this. This is above, beyond our skill level. 
we can't pull this off. There's something going on with this Hebrew God that we cannot mimic, and you probably need to take note of this. What does Pharaoh do? Verse 19, nothing. He says, no, you cannot go, and his heart is heartened. That brings us to the fourth plague. The fourth plague is a plague of flies. Look at verse 21. 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Verse 21, or else I will not let my people go. Or, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and on your people and into your houses and to the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which you stand. So think back to the summer. A month ago, when it, when it felt warm, actually three weeks ago when it felt warm, right? You decided to have a barbecue in your backyard. You got everything prepared. You got some nice filet out. Man, it's going to be good. You got the grill heated up. As soon as you, you get the sizzle going, the aroma is going up. Here they come. The, the flies can smell that good stuff that you've just marinated. And they're just all over where you're like swatting, swatting, swatting flies all over the place. Right. I mean, that's that's what happens. Honestly, I don't think the flies here are bad. Most of y'all are military. You've been all over the place and you've you've experienced flies in other places that are way worse. I would tell you that flies in North Carolina are definitely more aggressive than the flies in Northern Virginia. Just a state away. But there is no place in the world that has more aggressive flies than in the nation of Iraq. So check it out. My unit, artillery unit, I was a lieutenant. This is like eons ago. Our unit had begun a, a special mission. We were, we were to go up to the Iraqi border. This is uh, during Operation, Iraq, uh, Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, before some of you were even born. All right, and so uh, because we were so close to the, the Iraqi border before the actual war started, I mean, they told us to go this spot and this spot only, and we did that. We went to that spot. It just so happened that we had parked our stuff beside this, like, a graveyard for sheep and goats, and it was, like, funky, and there were flies everywhere. And here's the deal with uh, Iraqi flies, not just a little bit of Northern Virginia flies. They got, like, quarter-sized flies, and these flies are aggressive. They will fly into your mouth, sacrificing themselves. It's like, <laughs> like eat me. So if you, if you ask me, Jeff, have you eaten a fly? It's like, yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> nasty, like nasty stuff. And they're like juicy, too. You know, it's just like, it's gross. I know, I know. Hey, you don't have to kiss me, right? And I brush my teeth. So, I mean... This is that like multiplied by a million. Literally, this is like a gross plague because it's catastrophic. Look at verse 24. It says the land was ruined by these swarms of flies. They're everywhere. Verse 22 and 23. I'm going to read this. Verse 22 and 23. I got to find it first. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that, the, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Verse 23, thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. There's something unique going on here. God is localizing this plague as in the first three plagues. The, the truth is, as much as the Egyptians suffered these first three plagues, 
the Israelites were suffering it too. When the water turned to blood, they, I mean, they had to go search for water too. When, when they're dealing with, uh, with the gnats and with the, the other stuff, I mean, they're, and the frogs, they were dealing with this too. Here, God is saying, all right, I'm going to increase the severity and I'm going to increase the cost. And I'm also going to show you, I'm going to protect these people because they're my people. And I'm going to bring uh, a, a more severe cost on you. And so he localizes it. So there's, this is a, a complete blanketing of the land with flies everywhere. And so if you were an Egyptian, I mean, you're swatting flies and you're trying to have a barbecue and it's just flies everywhere. And you're looking over at your neighbor's house. Nothing. They're cooking out, too. And they're hanging out, chilling, laid back, enjoying their company, eating, enjoying their food. And you are uh, constantly um, swatting flies. Wouldn't that be peculiar to you that you're like experiencing uh, a catastrophic kind of a disease, and then right next door, they're not experiencing that. Decimation in one area, complete protection in another. And why does God do this? Because he wants both the Egyptians and the Israelites to know that he's behind this. Skip down to verse 25 to 32 in your Bibles. Pharaoh begins to bargain. He says to Moses, all right, so, all right, no, you can't leave. I'll let you go just a little bit ways outside of Egypt, but you can't go too far. Stay within the land. And what Pharaoh is suggesting to Moses is that he and Aaron um, just do a partial obedience. If, I mean, surely God won't care if you just partially leave and do whatever he's telling you to do. But, of course, Moses is reading right through this, and Moses knows that in God's economy, partial obedience is, is total disobedience. So what did Moses do? He basically tells Pharaoh, hey, we need to obey God. God says that we're supposed to go three days' journey, that, that all of us are supposed to go. We're supposed to take our animals because he wants us to give a sacrifice there. And God basically says, let my people go. And so fast forward, Moses prays that the flies would be removed. But notice in verse 32 in your Bibles, Pharaoh once again hardens his heart and he does not let God's people go. I mean, y'all, y'all seeing the pattern? I mean, you're seeing it repeated over and over again. And if you think of the progression of these plagues, here's, here's what's happening. God is walking up, and he's doing this through Moses and Pharaoh. He's walking up to Pharaoh, and he's ever so gently putting his hand around his neck. And he said, all right, Pharaoh, repent. And he's giving Pharaoh a chance to reply. And guess what Pharaoh is saying? No. Guess what God is going to do? He's going to squeeze a little harder. And then he says, all right, Pharaoh, repent. And guess what Pharaoh says? No. And God is going to squeeze a little bit harder. And that happens over and over and over again. God is increasing the severity, and he is increasing the cost of all these plagues. And he's going to do it over and over again, giving Pharaoh the opportunity to respond. And, of course, Pharaoh does not. Another thing to know is that uh, the Egyptians thought Pharaoh had supreme power to maintain order. And what God is doing here is he's doing the exact opposite. God is taking the order of this great nation of Egypt and he's introducing chaos. You know, think about it. There's got to be residue from all these miracles all over the place. 
they probably still are trying to find water, even though the Bible only says they suffered that for seven days. They're probably still trying to find water. There's probably gnats and flies and stinky dead frogs everywhere. They're suffering absolute chaos, and they're doing it because God is bringing it. All of them, except for the land of Goshen, where God's people are. And that brings us to the fifth plague. The fifth plague is Egyptian livestock dies. All right, we'll read in verse 9, 1 through 4. And the Lord said to Moses, go into, the, go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still uh, hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall on you with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. The Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. All right, so again, God is localizing this plague. He said, all right, Egypt, I'm Pharaoh. I'm going to kill all of your livestock. I mean, all of it. And guess what? I'm going to have mercy on all the livestock, all the resources of the Israelites. And so you'd think that after this, Pharaoh would be like, all right, so, I mean, just leave. But he doesn't. It's just crazy. Again, skip down to verse 11. Something interesting is happening. Remember back, the Egyptians... Uh, were able to mimic the water turning into blood, kind of. They, they could not counterfeit the gnats. They acknowledged that that was the finger of God, right? And then look what happens here, verse 11. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the, that's not right. I skipped one, didn't I? All right. All right, so you know how, uh, uh, the lifestyle, you know how that happens, right? Verse 5 and 6. The, the, the miracle happens. God kills all the livestock. And then verse 7 is interesting. That's what I meant to say. Verse 7 is interesting. Um, Pharaoh is, he's blown away by the fact that God localizes this, this, this miracle, this sign and wander. And so he sends a delegation to, to Goshen to look. And sure enough, the Egyptian livestock are all alive, whereas his has all been killed. And of course, that doesn't change his heart. He, uh, he still tells them they cannot go, and his heart is hardened. Now we get to the boils. All right, so there were multiple gods in the Egyptian pantheon that dealt with medicine or healing. So guess what God is doing here? He is mocking the Egyptian gods that can't do a thing about illnesses that come upon people and also animals. Verse 8 and 9, we've skipped to chapter 9. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them into the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Are you all familiar with boils? All right, so I, I, I only have one experience with this. When I was growing up, I had a really close friend, that, uh, a neighborhood friend, and it was a young girl, and from a very young age, she would get these wounds on her body. And basically, a, a boil is... A, a, a sore on your body, typically irritated by, um, by ingrown hairs, except it's like exacerbated, and they become really big, and they hurt. And so she would get them behind her ears, and she would get them under her arms. And after one heel, another would pop up. After one heel, another would pop up. And what's happening here is Moses takes like soot, and he throws it in the air, and that soot just like dust. 
It gets on everything, on people and on animals. And then, of course, verse 11, something very interesting happens. The, 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 um, the magicians aren't able to mimic it. In fact, this is why they aren't able to mimic it. It's because they've received the source in their body. Verse 11 tells us everybody that's an Egyptian were subject to this, um, to this plague, which means Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh, who had, at this point basically was just an onlooker. He's seeing his nation, he's seeing his resources uh, be uh, decimated and, and taken advantage of, but he himself is really not feeling the, the effect of all these miracles until now. And of course, you'd think that after suffering personally, that Pharaoh will repent, does he? Absolutely not. Verse 12, what does he do? He, uh, his heart is hardened. And so here's what ha- what's happening. God is setting Pharaoh up. He, he is exalting Pharaoh, or said differently, he's allowing his pride to swell. Why? So that the entire world would eventually know that it's not Pharaoh that has uh, great power, but God himself. In fact, God will say this in the rest of chapter 9. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of all the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. God is up in the ante here. He's saying, Pharaoh, all right, so the plagues have been against your stuff. And I know that, that I mean, that, that's suffering in a sense. But, but from here on out, I'm going to cause you to suffer and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now... You could have put out, uh, by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, important verse here, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You're still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, at this time tomorrow, I'm going to, I mean, God is basically saying, hey, you should have obeyed me by now. He's basically saying, I have ability to destroy you instantaneously. I could lick my finger and put you out like a candle. But I have not done that. I've been forewarning you, showing you mercy of my impending judgment in hopes that you would just change your mind, that you would see that your plans and your obstinacy are doomed to failure. Don't you know by now that you are completely outmatched? But of course, Pharaoh does not heed God's warnings. God is basically coming to Pharaoh and says, you have the question of, I mean, you've said, who is the Lord that I should obey him or even let his people go? Do you not yet know who I am? Have I not shown you that yet? And if you don't know who I am, I've got two more plagues to show you. The seventh plague is a plague of hail. There's multiple deities in Egypt regarding the sky and the atmosphere. So once again, God is making fun of these particular plagues. I mean, no one has ever experienced what's happening in this seventh plague. I mean, depending on what area of the country you, you are from, you're not unfamiliar with hail. Um, I've lived in the South most of my life. Even my, my army time was, was mostly in the South. And in the South, we can get some pretty significant hail, like golf ball sized hail. This is a little, it's like 
a crazy scale hell. This is like VW bug size hell falling, falling from the ground. Look at verse 18. The words that stick out to me are a very heavy hell. And this is in verse, verse 19. Here's what verse 19 says. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock. Send meanings. All right, y'all need to go out into the woods. Bring all your stuff in. If you got any servants, have them come in. Send. Where's my words at? Get your livestock and all that you have in the field in to safe shelter. For every man and beast that's in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on you. So, so this is not dent your car, bend your umbrella type of, of hail. This is like if you don't get your stuff and your person on the inside like with significant overhead cover, you're going to get decimated. You're going to die. And that really is what happens. So in verse 20, 21, this is unique. There's two things happening. Firstly, God is, I mean, you see Pharaoh's heart is consistently hardening. Uh, again, Pharaoh's being set up by God. He's being set up that, that Pharaoh's own pride and arrogance are getting him in trouble. But this is what we read in verse 20. There's a small group of people who are Egyptians, not even Israelites, that they're, they're heeding the words of the Lord. You see that, those words? It says, they fear the word of the Lord. In other words, they've caught wind. You know what? We thought Pharaoh was a god. It looks like the Hebrew god is really the god of gods. And we're going to stop listening to Pharaoh because the more we listen to Pharaoh, the more we get in trouble and the more we are suffering under these plagues. We're going to start paying attention to the Hebrew Gods. In verse 27, Pharaoh offers another false repentance. He says, this time I have sinned. And in verse 28, he asks Moses to intervene. Moses, would you pray to your God for me? In verse 30, Moses, of course, sees right through it. Moses, in effect, says, you've had me pray for you, Pharaoh, but hey, God sees what you're doing, and he knows that your heart is not in it. You're only coming to me asking me to pray because you got caught in the consequences of your sin. I know that your heart is not changing. You simply don't fear God. Your heart is just as hard as it was when God first sent me to you. In effect, what happens? Moses, uh, in his mercy, prays to God for the hail to subside, and as soon as it does, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he does not let the Israelites go. The eighth plague, locusts. All right, so the Egyptians had a deity that protected their agriculture. Uh, but what we'll find in this plague is that, I mean, this is going to be a completely catastrophic plague for the agrarian culture. Think, they've already had their livestock um, destroyed. And now God is going to send a plague that's going to take out the rest of their plant life. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may, uh, that I may show these signs of the signs of mine among them. Verse 2, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. And so interesting words here. I mean, what, what is God doing? Why has he brought these plagues? He's telling us here. He says, so the generations would know so that you and your sons and your grandsons would know how I've dealt with uh, the, the people that enslaved you. And if you think about it this way, I mean, we are those generations. Of course, thousands of years, six, eight or more thousands of years, depending on how you read, how, you know, how long ago the, the Bible was, was written, how old the earth is. 
We are the people that are reading these words. And I think the thing that God wants you to get is how big and powerful and incredible your God is. You should be seeing that through these miracles as you're reading about these great things that God has done. This is what God is screaming at us through these words. There's no God that we would somehow bow ourselves down to that is comparable to the, to the God of the Bible. He's saying that to the Egyptians, but he's also saying that to us thousands of years uh, away. And so why is this stuff happening? Because God is using Pharaoh. He's using these plagues to squash his pride and rebellion. He's squeezing him. But, the more he's, uh, but more than just using him, God is doing this to show off his own glory. He wants the world of this day to see the, the glory that is the, the God that they should serve, but he also wants us to see it. And so verse 3 and 4, God sends locusts. What's the big deal about locusts? They eat everything. I mean, they eat everything. And so verse 7, Pharaoh's servants decide to jump in and, and sort of question his sanity. They say, all right, Pharaoh, I mean, can you not see what this God is doing? I mean, he keeps increasing the severity of these plagues. And pretty soon, we're not even going to have a country left. God had, this God has decimated everything that we have. He's absolutely wiped us out. Why don't you simply just give in? Verse 8, of course, Pharaoh's heart is hardened enough that he keeps bargaining. He comes to Moses and basically says, okay, you can go, but not all of you. Just take what you need and leave some of you here. But of course, God doesn't negotiate. Why? Because God doesn't negotiate with anybody. So why would he negotiate with Pharaoh? And in that moment, he brings absolute utter destruction. Look at verse 14 and verse 15. We're almost done. The locusts came over, uh, up over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as has never been seen before, nor ever will be again. This is a singular event, and it just like incredibly wiped them out. They covered the face of the whole land, so the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that had hail left, uh, that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither the tree nor plant of the field though, uh, throughout all the land of Egypt. So think about it. This is an agrarian culture. Plagues five and six had taken out most of the livestock, and then what's happening here? Basically, the, the locusts are going through, and they're eating everything up. And so if you're a farmer, this is not just a bad year. I mean, your livelihood, your very uh, means of sustaining yourself, both of selling things and getting money for it, but also of growing things so that you can actually eat and feed your own family, it's been wiped out. Even if they put a seed in the ground, I mean, they can't, they can't grow that to, you know, to be able to consume it in, in months or years. If they have even a, a couple of calves or animals that they had hidden away that weren't uh, subject to the plague, even if they were to mate and have you know, a, a, a young animal, they can't cultivate that to be able to feed themselves. And so verse 16 and 17, what does Moses do? He pleads to the Lord on Pharaoh's behalf. The locusts are driven away, and of course the cycle continues. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Last plague, darkness. Here's why this is important. Pharaoh is a, calls himself the manifestation of the sun god Ra, right? And so if that's what Pharaoh calls himself, uh, one of Egypt's main gods is this sun god Ra. And so God sends 
complete darkness over their land to mock this God, this, 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 this special God that they have. And so read in verse 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Jesus, a darkness to be felt. I mean, have you ever felt darkness? I mean, the closest I've come to it is the, the, the jungle canopy of Panama. I mean, the canopy is so thick that even in the daytime, it seems kind of dark. And then at night, um, you know how in, in the military, you have this luminous tape on the back of your helmet so that you can see a person in front of you as you're maneuvering in the dark. In Panama, you can't even see that stuff. Um, I mean, I think it's probably even worse than that. A darkness that you can't, I mean, you can just feel it coming through you. And that's what's happening here. Darkness comes over this land to the point that it could be felt. Verse 24 and 26, Pharaoh cries, uncle. I mean, it's pitch dark for three days, and they can't do a thing about it. Again, this is localized. It's dark in the Egyptian territories. You look over in the Goshen, far, far away, and the Egyptians are doing everything in the normal cycle of the day. The sun comes up, the sun goes down as it's supposed to. And, I mean, Pharaoh basically says, okay, I mean, you can go, but you got to leave your stuff. And, of course, Moses tells him, hey, I can't compromise what God has told me to do. God has told me to tell you to let our people go. Verse 27 and 29 are significant. You should read those. I'm not going to read them. But basically, Pharaoh says, hey, I don't want to see you again. I'm not going to do what God says. I'm not going to do what you says. From this point on, I don't want to see your face again, because if I see your face ever again, I'm probably just going to kill you. And so the two-part ways. Nick is going to cover the, the final plague next week. The final plague is significant. It's the plague where we see the firstborn of, of every family that's not protected by God himself, by the blood of the lamb, um, is going to die. And why is that plague significant? Because in it we see how God redeems the people that that heed his word, that are obedient to him, how God redeems his own. And from that, I mean, literally, we're going to see um, the nation of Israel decimated by these nine plagues. Literally, everything that was significant for them as a resource is taken out by all these plagues. And some would say that Egypt has not recovered ever since. I'm going to turn and read one last thing. Uh, Jeff, I'm a, yeah. If you read your Bible closely, then you know the Bible interprets the Bible, and the Psalms actually speak a lot of the things that happen in the book of Exodus. And Psalm 78 actually uh, rehearses all of these plagues in a few verses. And he's like, well, why don't you just read those verses? Well, because you wouldn't have read the verses of Exodus, right? So Psalm 78, verses 43 through 50 say this. When he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan, he turned the rivers to blood so they could not drink of the streams. He sent them among the swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts and the fruit of their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to plagues. And then the, the psalm will go on and say he struck down the firstborn of, of every firstborn son. There's no greater demonstration of the power of God than what we see in these plagues, at least shy of, 
of God the Spirit resurrecting Jesus from the grave. And that's what the Bible is trying to get us to see. You know, a lot of times we read the Bible and we're focused on, all right, so God, show me what's important for me. Tell me about me. And, and we, I mean, God is speaking to us in the Bible and through the Bible. But here's what the Bible is about. The Bible is about God. And, and these words in this, in this text are screaming to us, this is who your God is. He's awesome. He's powerful. He has all authority. And no one on earth has authority that God has not relegated to them. That's what the text is telling you. And if I could, I mean, I'm just going to truncate this and, and give it to you real quickly. There's a couple lessons that we got to get from, from these plagues. And here's the first. There's still grace. Amidst the tragedy of, of all, the scene, all the things that we see exacted in, exacted in Egypt through these plagues, we see the grace of God. And we see it through this. Time after time, God gives Pharaoh a warning. All right, he says, um, just let my people go. That's all you got to do. And of course, Pharaoh says no. There's a, there's a wider discussion that we have to address. I, I can't go into it. But I mean, what does it mean that Pharaoh hardened his heart? What does it mean that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? There's a tension there. It's a tension that the, the Bible does not resolve. There's, this, there's, this, there's these two extremes in the Bible. On the one hand, we have a sovereign God who controls everything in his world as small as a nap, to include your life. He has everything to do with everything going on in your life. At the same time, we have this concept in the Bible, that man has responsibility. You have responsibility for every one of your responses and actions that you do. God doesn't make you do anything. And guess what? We see both of those in the Bible. And what, what is God telling us through that? He's telling you that he's a sovereign God who is beyond your capacity to understand. And here's the thing, folks. If you have a God that you can completely, absolutely understand, then he's not really a God, right? Because you, you're basically, you made that up, and you're controlling him. And so scholars would say, here's what's going on, that Pharaoh has such a recalcitrant, obstinate nature of his mind and heart that they were set. And regardless of what God said, regardless of what he sent Moses to do or say, Pharaoh wasn't going to budge. He had made up his mind. He was not going to change. Literally, there was no hope for Pharaoh. God knew this. But here's the greater truth. God is displaying patience. God is displaying his patience. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. God says this to Moses. The Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and righteousness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who, for, who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. These verses capture the greater meaning of the plagues. God is long-suffering towards us. He's patient. I say it like this. God extends grace and mercy towards us before he judges us. We sang that song today, didn't we? You delight in mercy is the words of the song, and it's coming from this text right here. Peter, Peter says something very similar to that. He says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. 
Instead, he is patient with you, not warning anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so the plagues reveal that God is patiently merciful. He extends grace and mercy to us. And we see this throughout the Bible. But here's the other side of this this verse. You start in Exodus 34. There is a point of no return. God says he will not leave the guilty unpunished, Exodus 34, 7. I mean, we don't necessarily live in a land where we're fearful of biblical plagues, but God is warning us that we need to learn the lesson of Pharaoh without having to pay Pharaoh's price. That's, that's what he's extending to us. He's like, you know what? There is a point where you being slightly repentant but not fully is going to cost you. And so he's telling us, you need to learn the lesson of Pharaoh without paying Pharaoh's price. Why? Because ultimately, Pharaoh and his land would be decimated, and in the end, Pharaoh is going to be totally consumed. Pharaoh loses here, and God does not want this to happen to us. And I mean, honestly, there are so many ways that we act like Pharaoh. I don't want to, I mean, bust your, your opinion of yourself. We're like Pharaoh. Whenever we say to ourselves, I don't need you, God. Whenever we say, I don't want your religion. Whenever we say, you know what? I'm, going to, I'm only going to come to God when I really need him. And then we pray a prayer. We ask someone to plead to God on our behalf. And then as soon as our circumstance has gone away and things are normal, what do we do? We turn around and go our own way. What have we done? We have become like Pharaoh. And so don't miss the reality of this text. God says, judgment is coming. Do not harden your heart. Here's the fourth lesson, and here's the good news. God moves to save his people. Think of all these plagues that were happening, just like the ferocity of them. And except for the three very first plagues, I mean, what suffering did Israel suffer in all of this? Very little. God protects his people. More importantly, God moves to save them. And what we're going to see in Exodus 11 and 12 is God, through the grand, one of the grandest miracles in all the Bible, he's going to protect but also save, redeem, and ultimately deliver those who call themselves his. Let me close with this. If you're a Christian, there's some good news here. In these 10 plagues is found some comforting assurance for those who trust in their God. It's almost like the Egyptians who realized, you know what, this Pharaoh's a knucklehead. If we fear the words of the Lord, we'll be like the Israelites, and God is going to, he's going to save us. And of course, we know because we're New, New Testament people, God saves us through the person and work of Jesus. There is another side to this is that you can just not heed God's words. And what happens then? Then, I mean, you're going to learn the lesson of Pharaoh. God's exhortation for all of us, learn the lesson of Pharaoh without paying Pharaoh's cost. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this interesting picture that you've given us of yourself. Lord, we're convinced you're not a homeboy. At least we should be convinced. You're not a a name that we can put on a T-shirt. Lord, you're the almighty God who created the universe. You put it in motion, and then you were gracious enough to put us here. God, you are the righteous judge that comes to to exact judgment on those who don't obey your commands. But Lord, the text also tells us that you extend mercy and grace 
to those who heed your words. And so, God, help us. Help us to be people who not just listen to your word, but actually do what it says. The important part of this text is that Moses and Aaron were actually obedient. Sure, they were scared. They were probably frightened, shaken at their knees every time they went to Pharaoh. But, Lord, you strengthened them and gave them courage to simply obey you. God, would you do that for us? As we hear your voice through the words of Scripture, God, would you give us the courage to obey you? Lord, for those who are here um, who are kind of being like Pharaoh in their lives, I pray, God, that today would be the day that they bow their knee and that they bow their hearts to the one that can extend to them grace before judgment and that they would notice that opportunity laid before them. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen and amen.